This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. What is ruthless consistency, and how can it make you a better leader? Why should we jettison strategic planning and pursue strategic management? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Michael Kanick, author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. Michael, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. What prompted you to write Ruthless Consistency, and what do you mean? Well, in a word, failure, seeing the ongoing failure rate of, of strategic change initiatives, you know, the companies have good intentions, good ideas, good, you know, good plans, but the execution is the hard part. And the research has shown that in the past 40 years, roughly, failure rates for these major initiatives continue to be around 60 to 70%. So given that's the reality, and my world has been developing and executing strategy with companies over the past, you know, 20 years. I really wanted to pass on some of the things that I have found have been very successful in implementing strategic change. As a follow-up, being consistent sounds simple. Why isn't it? And taken too far, doesn't consistency mean being inflexible? Where is there room for creativity and innovation if you're ruthlessly consistent? Right, right. Well, to your first point, it does sound simple. You know, just be consistent. What makes it difficult, of course, is that as a leader, you're on stage 24-7, and people are reading meaning into everything you say, everything you do, everything you don't say, you don't do. You're on stage, so you've got to be very careful. Am I sending consistent messages? Because people will pick up on the inconsistencies in, in a heartbeat. Now, when you ask, you know, doesn't it mean being, could it mean being inflexible? Well, by ruthless consistency, I don't mean, I don't mean robotic repetition. You know, this isn't about mindless and mechanical activity uh, just for the sake of being consistent. What I'm really talking about is a ruthless consistency of purpose, one that's constantly projected in your decisions, your actions, because it's the relentless alignment of decisions, actions, and intentions that really is the foundation of success. So let me give you an example. Let's say you want to have build a culture of innovation, for example. Okay. Well, how does innovation, you know, how, how does that align with the idea of consistency? Well, a ruthless consistency of purpose means everything we do needs to support a culture of innovation. So that means how we, you know, communicate to people, how we train them, what resources we give them, what we measure, the goals we set. And we want to create an environment where everything points them towards innovation. And to be successful, frankly, you know, innovation isn't counter ruthless consistency. It's really a requirement in today's business. To achieve your purpose, you can't be static. You've got to evolve. You've got to grow. You've got to try new things. You've got to experiment. 
innovation and creativity is part of how you achieve that consistency of purpose. So again, it's not about robotic repetition. It's really about you know making sure that everything we do, as creative and innovative as that might be, is consistently aligned with your purpose, your intentions. Michael, you noted in your book that every case of failure you came across could be traced back to inconsistency. What does it look like when leaders are inconsistent? Well, it'll be things like, you know, they set goals, but they don't provide the resources to achieve them. You know, so we've got big visions, big dreams. Hey, we're going to we're going to get to the moon, but oh, it's going to cost some money. Geez, we don't want to, you know, invest the resources to do it. That's a mixed message. That's inconsistency. It's when you promote something like an excellent customer experience, but as long as managers hit their financial targets, then the customer experience doesn't really matter. It's when we tell people, you know, this absolutely is the most important thing we have to do, but we don't give people the skills to do it. So any of those mixed messages, any of those things are what, what underline, you know, consistency and undermine our efforts. And they're subtle sometimes, but they're very powerful. So, Michael, in your book, it's, it's chock full of practical advice. And, and one of those things that I noticed was the principles you lay out. Now, you identify three principles that we must understand and embrace to maximize our chances for success. I'd like to explore each of these principles. So the first one, why does everything we do matter more than anything we do? Right. It's this idea of the, the silver bullet. And often leaders think, well, geez, you know, if we just put people through training, we'll be okay. Or we just put them, you know, give them some resources. And I can tell you the source of this was, you know, many years ago when I worked at FedEx, uh, I was given responsibility for overseeing the implementation of service quality in one of our districts. And, you know, instead of running off and forming teams or getting people through training, I wanted to look at other companies. What had they done? What was successful? What was not? Because a lot of companies had failed trying to implement service quality. So, you know, my preconception was, well, training's got to be critical. You know, give them good training and they'll be successful. Well, I started looking into the, the literature and found that companies had done a good job in training people, but had failed. So training wasn't a reliable predictor of success. Well, then I thought maybe it's communications. If we're constantly communicating it and, you know, what we need to do and why we need to do it and how we're going to do it. But that wasn't it either. I found companies that had done a very good job communicating, but again, it failed. And then I thought it was resources. Well, you have to give people, you know, the resources to get it done. But in some cases, companies that had devoted the most resources sometimes had the greatest failures. And then I thought, well, maybe it's incentives. No, that wasn't it. Or maybe it's measures. And what I found, Michael, was that there was no single factor that reliably predicted success. And, you know, when I was at a dead end, I was like, well, geez, isn't there anything you can do that predicts success? And then the light bulb went on. No, there isn't anything you can do. It's everything you do. All the things, all the arrows have to be aligned with what you're trying to get done. And the companies that were successful at implementing service quality, yes, they provided the training, but they also provided the communications, the resources. They gave people coaching. They aligned the rewards. They held people constructively accountable. Everything pointed people in the right direction. And so what I found is that, you know, there is no silver bullet. And that's why I say what's more important than anything you do is everything you do, because everything has to be aligned to drive strategic change. So, Michael, that's great insight. So why is what we do not as important as what our people experience? And more importantly, why does inconsistency capture people's attention 
in a way that consistency does not. Right. Well, when I started applying, you know, the principles of ruthless consistency, uh, initially there were some change efforts that weren't getting implemented. And I would talk to leaders and I would say, well, you know, did we do, you know, the training and the communications and all this? They say, yeah, I do. I did this. Yeah, we got that done. We told them, we got them through training. But then I talked to the people and the people gave a very different story. So what the leaders perceived was happening was not the same as what the people perceived, right? The leader said, well, we told them. Yeah, we told them why we need to do it. And often the people said, well, that wasn't really clear. I, I, I'm not sure why we're doing this. Or the leaders thought they had provided the resources and the people said, well, no, we don't have enough of this to get it done. Or they had provided, you know, uh, uh, communications or training or any of these things. So the people's perspective was different from the leader's perspective. And the trap is everything we read about leadership is about what leaders do and what leaders need to do and how you can become a great leader. Well, the reality is it's not about you. It's only through you. The ultimate test is, do your people feel they have the the resources, the skills, the authority, the expectations, uh, the coaching? Do they feel everything's aligned? And people are bloodhounds for inconsistency. You know, the moment you say one, one thing but do another, boom, they're on it. And that's why it captures people's attention, you know, in a way that consistency does it. You know, we expect leaders to be consistent. You know, you say something 10 times or you do something 10 times. But if, on the, if in the next time that you do something different, that captures my attention. Why did you do that? You know, if you're promoting service, you know, great service 10 times, but then I see you as a leader doing something that's against great service, I'm thinking, well, hold on, that's, that's not consistent with what you said. And I think we've all experienced this if you've ever dealt with a, uh, a child, for example. Have you ever had a child say to you, hey, why did you tell me to do that when you didn't do that? They pick up those inconsistencies. You know, people are bloodhounds for inconsistencies. So, you know, we're hardwired for consistency. And when things aren't consistent, that grabs our attention. So, Michael, you point out in your third principle, we are not as committed as we need to be yet. Why are we not as committed as we need to be yet? And how important is commitment in the pursuit of ruthless consistency? Right. Well, commitment, Michael, really is the foundation. That's what provides the impetus, the fuel for everything. Without commitment, it's not going to happen. And, you know, what does that look like? I think leaders fool themselves, and they don't have a benchmark as to what true commitment looks like. And I can tell you, I've surveyed thousands of leaders, and at the beginning of presentations, I'll say, you know, how committed are you to winning? And, of course, everybody says, very committed, 100% committed, all in. But then when we get to the end of the presentation, their answers are a lot different. Oh, I'm not as committed as I thought I was. So every leader thinks he or she is committed, but they need benchmarks. So I like to, to paint a picture of the benchmarks. And one of the examples I give in the book is Lindsey Vaughn, who is the most successful female ski racer in history. And I talk about what she had to do to become the most successful female ski racer in history. Because all we see is race day and the wins. But what we don't see is what goes on behind the curtain all the training, all the effort, all the sacrifices that are made. And she was famous for having a a maniacal training schedule. So year round, she would train five to six hours a day, every day, five to six hours, which when it comes to physical training is a huge amount of training. Now, of course, you train that much, you also need recovery. So she slept, I think it was something like 11 hours a day, you know, for recovery. Um, 
sacrifice, you know, like many athletes, broken bones, torn ligaments, all the things you have to go through, concussions, right? All the things you want to you want to do, but you have to give up so you can train. And they said from a young age, she skied literally tens of thousands more slalom gates than any of her competitors. She was absolutely relentless in doing whatever it took to learn, to train, to get better, to improve. So I'm not saying every leader has to be a Lindsey Vaughn, but what I'm saying is don't thump your chest and, you know, I'm really committed, I'm totally committed, when you've really only done a fraction of what's possible. Why should leaders embrace strategic management and forego strategic planning? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are key leadership qualities for a digital age? How can we become a mindful leader? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Jacqueline Carter, co-author with Rasmus Hugard of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. First, why is it critically important and almost foundational to understand how you lead and who you are? When we looked at a lot of leadership development programs today, they will start with external factors, Mm -hmm. like how good you are at strategy or how good you are at marketing or how good you are at finance. But it's kind of like building a house and starting with a roof. If you don't fundamentally understand who you are and how you show up, and most importantly, and this is really the mind of the leader gets into how your mind actually works, then you're really missing out on the opportunities to be able to dive deeper into how you want to show up. What is your vision for yourself as a leader? What are the values that are important to you? And based on those values and that vision that you have for yourself of what kind of leader you want to be, how can you actually make sure that you work towards achieving those? And I think specifically for a lot of leaders, what we saw is that what got you here won't get you there. So leaders who are really successful rising up through the ranks in their career, they get to this inflection point where all of those great things that they were really good at, and when they get put in that that one leadership role where now they actually have to get others to be creative, others to be able to develop the projects and tools and systems, it takes a different mind. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Michael Kanek, author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. Uh, so, Michael, why should leaders embrace strategic management and forego strategic planning? And what do you mean by strategic management, and how is it a more comprehensive and far more robust approach to developing and sustaining focus for a leader? Yes, that's a very good question. And I can tell you from my experience years ago, I, I ran the consulting division of the Atlanta Consulting Group, and we would do strategic planning for companies. So typically mid-market companies, we would go in, lead them through this strategic exercise. A plan would be developed. Their team would be all amped up, ready to go conquer the world. We'd ride off to, into the sunset, you know, mission accomplished. They would invite us back next year and say, help us with our plan, you know, this year. And we would, of course, ask, okay, what got accomplished last year? Well, you know, that's when the wringing of the hands started, the shuffling of the feet, and people would look aside. Well, you know, we kind of got busy and this and that. Well, the reality is not a lot got done. And when I got into the research, what I found is that that's not uncommon. That's the reality of strategic planning. Most strategic planning initiatives fail. The figures are something like 70 to 90% of strategic planning initiatives fail to deliver on their promise. So of course the question is why? And I think the number one reason is we treat strategy as an event, not a process. We think of strategic planning as an event. We put the focus on the word planning and planning does what? It develops a plan. Or we think of the plan, the document. It's not about developing a plan, it's about getting results. So that's when I developed what I call the strategic management process which treats strategy as an ongoing process. It's not an event, it's ongoing, it's a process. It has to be managed. It's not going to implement itself. And when the strategic management process is the overarching process for your organization, mapped to the fiscal year, and that includes you know, from the front end assessment and development of the plan, but the mechanisms to make sure that we execute what needs to get done, that's a much more robust approach to you know, sustaining focus. So really, it's about a process, not an event. And I, I tell my clients, Michael, I say, don't even say the word strategic planning, because when you say that, what do you think of? The plan, the planning, right? Say strategic management, exactly. Say strategic management, and you're going to think, how do we manage our business strategically to achieve what we need to achieve? So, Michael, you point out, I mean, it's very practical, some of the insights you offer in your book. Saying that everything needs to be consistently aligned is one thing, but doing it is another to be ruthlessly consistent, three things must be done, you point out. And what are those three things that must be done? Right. So the three things to be ruthlessly consistent is that leaders need to develop the right focus, create the right environment, and build the right team. And every strategic change initiative, Michael, I have seen, I have led, I have read about, I have come across, it always comes down to those three things. Have we developed the right focus have we created the right environment so that people can execute on it? And have we built the right team? And what makes it tough is that it takes all three. You know, if we have the right focus and the right team, but we put them in the wrong environment, well, we demotivate those good people. If we have the right focus and right environment, but with the wrong team, they can't get it done. And if we have the right team in the right environment, but with the wrong focus, well, they do a great job going in the wrong direction. 
So it takes all three. We have to develop the right focus, create the right environment, build the right team, and the model of ruthless consistency really is focused on those three things. And then when leaders have the right commitment to fuel it, now we can be successful. Now we can get things done. In your book, Ruthless Consistency, you reference the cult of leadership. My show, we focus on uh, leadership and, and in particular, how to enhance government leadership. So I was particularly interested in this, this aspect of your book. If there's one thing you could sear into the minds of, of our listeners about leadership, what would that be? It would be that it's not about you, it's through you. It's not about you, it's through you. Get over yourself as a leader. I think it was John Maxwell who said, you know, if you think you're leading, but no one's following, you're really just going for a walk, you know? So it's not about you. And too often, and you know, leaders can be forgiven for thinking it's about them. Because again, there are a lot of books on leadership, what great leaders have done, what you need to do. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do. It's got to be about your people. They're the ones who are implementing the change. They're doing the real work. They're executing the strategy. It's not the CEO who's running around and doing the details of everything. It's his or her people. So if there's one thing, again, I'd see into their, your mind as a leader, it's not about you. It's only through you. And if you can get over your ego and realize you're just the enabler of all this, your role is to create the environment, to build the team, and to you know, develop the focus so that that team then can go ahead and win. Excellent insight, Michael. I, I found it very provocative and very important. Um, what drives an organization to change and what are the two fundamental drivers of change? Right. So if you look at, the, again, what when organizations are successful or not successful, often the successful organizations have a strong vision or ambition. So they're very motivated towards achievement. But then in most cases, what you know prompts change is pain. Something very painful is happening. We're losing market share. We have lot, losing key customers. Um, the global pan, pandemic, you know, that we're experiencing right now. Pain is a great motivator. And what I found is that most companies historically have focused on the gain side, and they'll come up with a vision statement. They'll come up with a big audacious goal, but then nothing happens. Why? Because that vision or that goal is a nice to do. It wasn't a must do. What I've found is much more reliable in predicting change is if organizations develop both that pain statement and the gain statement. It's the pairing of the two. Here's the pain we're gonna suffer if we don't change, and here's the gain we're gonna benefit if we do change. And so by pairing those two fundamental drivers together, that ends up producing a much more compelling case for change. And I tell you, that's, that really provides the impetus that, that sustains the change effort you know, across the year. So we're, we're on the conversation around change and the need for ruthless consistency in order to realize change. But you identify four poisons that could keep your organization from changing. What are those poisons? Right. And these are all very understandable and they're, they're human nature, they're psychological. The first one is complacency. And, you know, complacency is really the, the narcotic that dulls the drive for change. And complacency is something that we're all prone to. It's we get comfortable in what we're doing. And yeah, things are going pretty well. There's nothing really prompting us to change. And then we get blind to emerging threats. You know, our uh, performance standards soften. We don't react as quickly to threats in the environment. So complacency is one of those. It's, it's really the poison of thinking everything is good enough. The second one is arrogance. And think of complacency, but with a, you know, a shot of ego there. 
And the arrogance is that, that smugness. You know, we're better. We're smarter than the others, right? We've got to figure it out. You know, and if you're at the top of your game where you're an industry leader, it's especially dangerous. You're especially susceptible to that. So that's the second poison. The third one is something I call the, the fallacy of extrapolation. And that's that stubbornly persistent view that, well, you know, past trends are going to continue into the future. Geez, business is going, the economy is growing, so it's going to continue to grow. Or our customers love us, they will continue to love us. So it's that fallacy of extrapolation. We, we assume things will keep going in the same direction, and often, of course, they don't. And then the final one is just psychological inertia. It's that tendency to keep doing what we've been doing, the way we've been doing it. Why? Because it's efficient. We don't have to devote resources, you know, attentional resources to doing something. And the example I give is, uh, you know, if you think of, you know, well, in the morning, if you take a shower, I'll bet you, Michael, that you're not consciously thinking, hmm, do I wash my left arm before my right arm? Do I wash my arms before my legs, right? You're on autopilot, right? That, that's, your, that's how we work. It's efficient. It's psychologically efficient. So that's psychological inertia. Once we have a pattern or habit of doing something, we just follow on that, not because we're resistant to change. That's human nature. As you point out in the book, change always brings with it pain. What are the three ways to find that pain? Right. Well, the, the easiest and unfortunately the most painful is when it finds you. Something happens, you know, the economy crashes, you know, think of the, uh, you know, the Great Recession or think of our global pandemic now, right? Something unanticipated finds you, it forces you to change. Now, here's what's interesting. A lot of companies now are finding there are a lot of efficiencies by not having everybody have to come to the office every day. Now, if you had asked people before the pandemic, you know, change your business, don't make everybody come to the office every day, people would have resisted. But since that change was forced on them, they're finding, oh, actually, this isn't so bad, you know? And yes, maybe we'd like to have more, more office time than we do today, but we don't need to go back to where everybody comes into the office every day. That may not be what we need. So sometimes the pain finds you, forces you to change. You have no choice. And the blessing in that is, you can't rationalize in a way. You have to change. Now, if the pain doesn't find you, then you have to anticipate it. And anticipating the pain is critical because that overcomes that psychological inertia. And what that looks like is we'll have companies look into the future and say, okay, let's take a look at internally. Let's take a look at the market, your customers, your competitors, technology, uh, globalization, what's going on. What could cause us to fail? What could threaten us in the future? And the best way to do that is by attacking your assumptions. So anticipating the pain is the, is the second way to, to find the pain. You know, look into the future, really attack your assumptions to find out what could cause you that pain. The third way to find the pain, if it hasn't found you and looking into the future, geez, there's no pain I anticipate, is to create the pain. And my favorite example is the guy who is the, uh, uh, used to be the uh, CEO of uh, Patagonia, who is the founder, Yvonne Schwinnard. Uh, Patagonia is the outdoor high-performance you know, clothing retailer. And they've got a strong environmental focus. Well, they're a successful company, well-established brand. They're known as being innovative. They've got strong relationships, solid financials. You know, so in short, no pain. Well, one day or, or uh, years ago, what they found through their internal analysis was that they were doing something that wasn't very environmentally friendly, and that is uh, environmental uh, impact of industrial-grown cotton. 
they realized that industrial-grown cotton, which is not very environmentally friendly, was in a lot of their products. So Schwinnard decided, I'm going to give the company 18 months to stop using it, period. No more industrial-grown cotton within 18 months. Now, how significant was that? Well, at the time, 25% of Patagonia's business, which was about a quarter of a billion dollars, was based on products made with industrial cotton. So he didn't anticipate the pain. There was no pain there. It didn't find him. He created the pain as a mandate and saying, we must change this. And if we don't, we've got 25% of our quarter billion dollar business at risk. So what happened? The prospective pain of losing, you know, obviously all that revenue was simply unacceptable. So a very concerted effort was made and the company did make the switch within 18 months. And its stand on using only environmentally friendly cotton products uh, helped to further differentiate it. It elevated its brand and made it an even more profitable company. So all to say, if the pain doesn't find you and if you can't anticipate it, then create the pain. Create the burning platform within your company that says, we must do this or else. Michael, you offer a very interesting insight. You say, attack your assumptions. Pain is around the corner. Anticipate it. And here's the insight. You suggest we lease our beliefs and do not own them. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, all of us get attached to our beliefs. And, and there's a saying that knowing gets in the way of learning. And one of the traps of gaining experience and maybe being successful is that then we start to learn things and we treat them as if those are hard and fast truths. We know that. We don't have to question that again. Well, yes, there's some efficiency in learning and knowing, but it can also limit our thinking. So one thing I, I really emphasize with all our clients is to attack their assumptions. Attack your assumptions. Now, what kinds of assumptions do we have? Well, we have assumptions about the marketplace. You know, our customers love us. Well, yes, you know, maybe your customers love you today, but does that mean they're going to love you in the future? And my favorite example here is BlackBerry. You know, you go back 10, 15 years, everybody loved their Blackberries. They were very loyal to BlackBerry. They were strong proponents of BlackBerry. It was such a cool device. Well, the moment that the, you know, iPhone came along and changed the value equation, even though people love their Blackberries, they switched. So, you know, people, customers loving you or, you know, uh, so-called being, you know, uh, big fanatics or big fans doesn't matter because they could love you and switch. Customer satisfaction, Michael, does not equal customer loyalty. And that's a very important distinction because often companies think our customers love us, they're very satisfied, they will be loyal. What customers are loyal to is value. The moment somebody else offers or just might offer more value, they will bolt. So that's an example of an assumption we have to attack. Our customers love us. Another one is we're better than our competitors. Everybody thinks we're better than our competitors, right? We look at our strengths. You know, we're not like those guys. Well, yes, maybe, maybe not. And what's to say that your competitors are staying static? Maybe they're aggressively trying to improve. What about emerging competitors you hadn't thought of? You know, it's all great, all well and good if you're a Walmart, but you might have a competitor that, that, comes, uh, that comes to attack you that you hadn't even thought of, you know, Amazon, a totally different business model. So that's another assumption we have to question. So there are market assumptions, there are internal assumptions. And you know, the one I often hear companies say about uh, internally is, well, we have great people. Well, every company I've ever worked with says they have great people. And sure, some of them have great people, but too many companies think that their people are a differentiator when they're not. 
And when they think they have great people, sometimes they get a little lax. So all to say, Michael, this attacking your assumptions, you know, leasing your beliefs, not owning them is absolutely critical if we're going to find the pain that's going to drive us to change. How can ruthless consistency help leaders deal with today's crisis? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Michael Kanick, author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. Michael, uh, we are in the midst of a, of a pandemic response, and um, how important is ruthless consistency for leaders during today's crisis? Yeah, and this is very important. Having that ruthless consistency of purpose is even more important now. And you have to be even more painstaking in being consistent. Why? Because people are anxious. Your people are confused, right? They're not sure what's going to happen. None of us know what's going to happen. So it's especially important you're consistent in communicating with your people. And the term I like to use, Michael, is to over-communicate during times of change or over-communicate during times of crisis. Because people need to know, you know, not just where are we going, not just how, but why. Why are we changing to this? What does it mean for me? How are we going to support you? We need to be ruthlessly consistent in valuing people and making sure they know we appreciate them. They're playing a valuable role, right? They belong. They're doing something that's meaningful. It's especially important we're consistent in valuing people now. And it's especially important that we're consistent in providing people with the tools and the information to do the job. Because the anxiety is people's roles have had to shift. Maybe they're doing some things, they have to do some different things than before. Maybe some of the things they used to do have gone away. So we've got to make sure we're very consistent in providing people whatever tools and information they need given the new reality. So in times of change, Michael, ruthless consistency is even more important because if you don't do that, you risk demotivating people who are already anxious, already confused, and that, then you end up with a very bad situation. Michael, once again, you're, you lay out a concept called ruthless consistency, but you also recognize that there needs to be practical application of, it, of this concept. So, you know, strategy is not an execution plan. So how best can we translate our strategy into an actionable execution plan? Yeah, that's very good. 
often I'll ask companies, you know, show me your strategic plan. And they'll show me a plan and say, great, so how do you manage this? How do you manage the execution of it? And they'll point to the plan and they'll say, well, we do this. We talk about this. And my response is, well, talking about it or revisiting it doesn't do anything unless there's an execution plan. And think of it like project management. There needs to be a clear, what are we trying to achieve with this particular strategy? Who's the champion of the strategy? Who's on the team? What are the time-linked milestones we have to hit to make this happen? What are the resource requirements to hit each of those milestones? What's our uh, projected return on strategy that warrants all this effort? So this is project management. There's got to be an ongoing project management process. The execution plan is simply a, it might be a a two-page document that captures those key points. That's what you're managing monthly. You're not looking at that overall strategic plan and say, let's talk about this. You're managing towards those time-linked milestones in your execution plan. So we have to take that so-called strategic plan, translate it into the execution plan. That's what's actionable. To create the right environment, Michael, why must leaders be coaches and not just managers? Well, simply put, coaches take responsibility for the performance of their people. Coaching, a coaching mindset is, what do I need to do to help my people perform at their best? What buttons do I need to push? What things do I need to put in place? What levers do I need to pull to help each of my people perform at their best? Coaches take responsibility. And, you know, managers often will just say, well, here's your job, go do it. I'll come back in a year and we'll evaluate your performance in a year. Well, that's not coaching and that's not even managing, frankly, but that's what many managers do. So imagine a, imagine a football game. The beginning of the game, coach runs onto the field with the team. The band is playing. The fans are cheering. The coach runs out onto the field. And then the coach turns around and runs off the field. And he comes back at the end of the game to tell the team how well they did or didn't do. Well, that would be a pretty silly way to engage your team. But that's what we do in business, right? We're disengaged from people. Coaches take responsibility. So two people are responsible for the performance of people. It's the people have to perform. The coach needs to create the environment that enables them to perform. And I'll tell you, the other thing is that good coaches realize that not every player, not every team member responds the same way to the same approach. So for example, with some team members or some employees, you know, you just need to point them in the right direction, get out of the way and let them go do it. Others need you to reinforce their every step. They take a step and then they turn their shoulder and look at you and say, hey, am I doing okay? Is that all right? And you'll say, yeah, that was very good. You can take the next step. And they'll take one more step. They'll look back and they'll say, am I still doing okay? Is that good? And you'll say, yeah, go ahead. That's very good. So different players, different team members need different approaches. Coaches are very adaptive to the needs of their different team members to help them perform their best. Michael, can you explain why you emphasize holding people constructively accountable. (laughs) Right. And constructively being the key word here. I I think we need to change our mindset, Michael, around accountability. We think of it as a negative thing. It's uncomfortable. Managers don't like to do it. They avoid it. So I think we need to reframe it. And here's how. I call it constructive accountability because the purpose of holding a person accountable isn't to, to bully them, to belittle them, to berate them. The purpose is constructive. It's to help them improve, help them grow, help them perform better, help them achieve. The purpose of accountability is very positive, should be very positive. That's why I call it constructive accountability. 
So first, I think we have to change our mindset. And we have to look at this as an opportunity to help people improve. I'm having a conversation with you, Michael, not because you're a bad guy, not because I don't like you. It's because, hey, Michael, here's what's going on. Let's talk about what's happening and why. Let's talk about how I can support you. Let's make sure we're clear on expectations. This is a coaching conversation. That's why it's constructive accountability. And when leaders adopt that mindset, they're much more willing to hold people constructively accountable to have those conversations. And I find they're often surprised with the employee takes it more positively, and then is able to improve performance. Why is it essential, Michael, that leaders need to value people? (laughs) Well, I I wish I had recognized it was a truism when I first started managing. (laughs) I I was one of those very task-oriented, you know, managers where, you know, you just tell people what to do, point them in the right direction, and they should go do it. That's their job. Well, you know, over time, of course, what I learned is you hire employees, but human beings show up to work with their, their, their hopes, their ambitions, their fears, their securities, their insecurities. And if you're not attuned to the human side of, uh, of people, then you're likely demotivating them, or you may not be motivating them. So what I've found increasingly is that, you know, when people feel you respect them, that you trust them, and that you care about them as individuals, those three things that really amplifies the effect of everything else you do. It really helps to cement their sense of purpose, their sense of belonging, their sense of engagement. And I'll share with you a quick story. That is, my, my wife and I like to travel, uh, like to explore different countries, how do people live, different cultures. We've been to around 50 countries. Well, whenever we travel, I like to ask people about their work. Tell me about your job. Do you like it? You know, do you like the company? Why? Why not? Do you like your boss? Why? Why not? And I have to tell you, Michael, that regardless of of country or culture or ethnicity or uh, any other distinction you might want to make, this is a universal truth. Around the world, everyone wants to feel respected. Everyone wants to feel trusted. Everyone wants to feel cared about as an individual. Those three things are universals. And when we tap in at the human level, you know, to people's psychology around those things, then we're truly engaging people. I understand that uh, just from reading your book, Ruthless Consistency, you are no longer a fan of the traditional mission and vision statement. Yet to develop and sustain focus, it is critical we establish strategic positioning. To that end, what four questions are necessary to answer in order to establish strategic positioning? Right. You know, and to start with, you know, why I'm not a big fan of traditional mission and vision statements What I've found, and many others have found as well, is that often leaders don't remember their mission or their vision statements. And if they're supposed to be the most important statements in your company, and you don't remember them, well, what is that saying? So there's a problem with the traditional mission and vision statements. And the research shows that about 20 years ago, they were the most most prevalent management tool. I think it was something like 88% of companies had mission and vision statements. Well, that number has decreased to like 35% over the past 20 years. People have started becoming cynical about mission statements or visions. Why? They're too long. They're too vague. They're too general. They're those word, nicely crafted words on the boardroom wall, you know, framed in glass. Uh, they don't have the impact they used to have. So I find employees, especially younger employees today, are becoming cynical about many of the traditional mission and vision statements. 
But at the same time, as you said, we need to have, you know, we need to establish our strategic positioning. So what does that mean? Well, there are four key questions I think, you know, have to be answered. And number one is, what do we do? What do we do? As in what business are we in? right? Or what are we trying to accomplish here? And if it's in government, what do we do in our agency, in our department, in our field, whatever? What is it we do? Getting crystal clear. And this is a, you know, a single, short, descriptive statement. It's not one of these run-on statements. It's not all this glossy, flowery language. It's simply descriptive. And, you know, I'll give you an example of a what we do statement. Uh, one of the companies we work with, here's what they do. We help people by restoring buildings and possessions that have been damaged by fire or water. We help people by restoring buildings and possessions that have been damaged by fire or water. So that's a concise statement. It tells me they're in the restoration business. That's what they do. And there's also a sense of purpose there because they help people whose lives have been turned upside down. So I think it's important we have this what we do statement. And I want everyone in the company being able to recite at the drop of a hat when they're saying, you know, you meet somebody for the first time and they say, oh, nice to meet you. You work with company ABC or you work with agency ABC. What do you do? Well, I think everybody in the organization should have that concise, consistent statement that basically explains what we do. The second thing I want to know is what does winning look like? What does success look like? What does winning? Let's paint a picture, a very concise, focused picture of winning. And the one, of course, everybody knows is, you know, going back many years to Kennedy, you know, we will put a man on the moon by the end of the decade and return him safely to Earth, right? That's a very concise, very memorable winning statement. So I think the same thing in any organization. Let's be clear on what do we aspire to achieve? What are we trying to achieve here? And these things can be short. They can be concise. Um, I remember years ago when uh, Toyota decided they were going to move up market and they formed Lexus, their luxury car division. Well, winning for them was two words, beat Benz, as in beat Mercedes-Benz. So that was two words. So it's important to have a winning statement, a short winning statement. What do we aspire to achieve? The third statement is what is our brand commitment? What makes us not just different, but desirably different? Too often I'll hear marketing people simply talk about differentiation, Michael. They'll say, well, you know, what makes you different? You know, we're the only company that does this. Well, yes, but does anyone care and will they pay for it? So you have to be desirably different in through the eyes of your target market segments. What's your brand commitment? What makes you special? What makes you different? What makes you unique? We're the only company that does this, you know, or we're the, you know, when you think of low cost, certain companies come to mind. You think of high quality, you think of innovative, right? That's the idea of a brand commitment. What makes you desirably different? And then finally, what is your cultural commitment? What is your cultural commitment or commitments? What does your culture need to look like to win? And to give you an example here, one of the clients we worked with in the insurance industry, their insurance brokerage, they decided that their cultural commitment was built around caring, that we care. We care about our employees. We care about our customers. We care about our carriers. We care about our community. Everything was built around caring, that we care. And they had a number of initiatives that supported that. So the cultural commitment, what must your culture look like if you're going to win as an organization? 
So I do think it's important we have strategic positioning. I think they have to be concise statements. They've got to be memorable. We have to reinforce them. I'm just not a fan of the traditional mission and vision statements. And Michael, I was, I was interested. You you mentioned prioritize your priorities and do less while using more resources. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, prioritize your priorities means every leader has priorities. And when you ask them, they'll list way too many priorities. Everything's important. Everything's a priority. They take on too much. Well, the reality is you can't do all those things. And Warren Buffett has a wonderful story about when his pilot came to him at one time about advice for his career. Buffett told him to write down his top, I think it was his top 10 priorities. And he wrote them down. And then he said, circle your top five. I said, okay. And he goes, here's what's most important. The five you didn't circle become your absolute do not touch list. Do not touch the things that were the next five. And the point is, Michael, it's not the, it's not the obvious non-priorities that, that siphon away our time. It's the almost top priorities. It's the almost top priorities that distract us, that divert us from the things that are our are true priorities. So if there's one thing I'm relentless about, it is do less. Do less, do less, do less. Focus on the few, the very few critical things that must be done to succeed. And other, those other things are nice to-dos or could-dos, but they're not must-dos. And when you focus on the few, here's the benefit. You can take some of those resources you are allocating to other things, concentrate them on the few. Concentrate your resources on fewer things, which means you have more resources to, to do those things with. Now you're more likely to accomplish them. So I can tell you, my, the number one reason I find companies fail when it comes to execution is quite simply, they take on too much. They become the victims of their own ambition. So prioritize your priorities. Focus on those very few must-do things. How can ruthless consistency change the way government does business? We'll explore this question and so much more when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Eng, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. How can we lead from the future? What is future back thinking? How can it help leaders navigate the COVID disruption and lead with purpose? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Mark Johnson, co-author of Lead from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth, next week on the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Network. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Michael Kanek, author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. 
Michael, would you tell us more about yourself? Um, how did you conduct your research for this book and how did your experience help shape your views? Right. So uh, a couple things. One, I, I used to coach college football at, at one time. So, you know, being with a group of very focused people with a common goal where you're recruiting the, you know, the right team, uh, that was a real, a real testing ground for the whole notion of ruthless consistency. And the idea of creating that right environment every day and, and having the right team and the right focus, we ended up winning a national championship. So it was a great experience and really got me grounded in the principles of ruthless consistency. Uh, the other relevant piece of my background is my, my doctorate is in the psychology of human performance. So it's the factors that influence how do we perform? What causes us to perform well? What are the factors that help drive performance improvement? So that gave me a lot of the, I'll say, the academic background and the, uh, the research and access to the research as to what really, you know, aids or inhibits performance. So, you know, the research for the book, frankly, is a combination of things. One, I've surveyed literally thousands of leaders on strategy and execution, making strategy happen, change. I've surveyed thousands of leaders. Uh, I've examined a lot of research as to why organizational change efforts succeed or fail. And that's largely what led to this notion of ruthless consistency. And then it's been validated uh, over my roughly 20 years as a consultant, as a strategy and execution consultant. You know, so hammering away at those real, real world challenges that companies face evolving the model, uh, that's gotten to the point where we're at today where ruthless consistency is a very reliable and robust approach to making strategy happen. So, Michael, wonderful insight. Who will benefit most from your book, Ruthless Consistency? Yes, and I appreciate you asking this, Michael, because this is important. Because people often think these books are written for business leaders. But I'm very clear. My focus is on organizations. So sure, that's business, but that's government. That's healthcare. That's education. That's not-for-profits. This is for organizational leaders because it has to do with organizational performance, organizational change, implementing organizational strategies. So organizational leaders, and truthfully, I'm really interested in those who are committed, the committed leaders who truly want to make a difference, who don't just want to go through the motions and ride out the wave. Committed leaders are the ones who are really going to benefit from this book and aspiring leaders as well. So younger leaders who are ambitious, who want to make a difference, it's written for aspiring leaders as well. I think they will benefit from it. And of course, anybody who's involved in implementing change or strategy, I think they'll benefit from the book as well. So Michael, what is the first thing a leader can do to become ruthlessly consistent? <laughs> well, look in the mirror, be honest with yourself, you know, and ask yourself, how committed am I to winning? Am I willing to do what it takes to win? Because I'll tell you, one of the things I learned in coaching, Michael, and this is an old coaching adage, there is a big difference between the will to win and the will to do what it takes to win. And you'd better understand that difference. Everybody wants to win. They want to say they want to be a part of a winner. Are they willing to do what it takes? And often that means doing what you don't want to do or don't like to do, but knowing that you must do if you're going to be successful. So as a first step, I just say with leaders, be very honest with yourself. There's no right or wrong answer. Start with an honest assessment. How committed am I to winning? So, Michael, how does the principles of ruthless consistency apply both to the operations of government as well as the, the politics of governance? Hmm. 
Right. It's a good question. And, and they do. And I think the most obvious way is that, you know, in, in government, we typically have, you know, an election cycle. So we have a, you know, whether it's a four-year cycle for the president or six years for the Senate, you know, there's, a, there's an election cycle, which means there's very little incentive to focus on longer-term interests. And I think this is something we see play out in government, right? There's not a lot of incentive for longer-term interests. In fact, some longer-term problems or issues, they're actually disincentives to deal with them because they might involve short-term pain or sacrifice, and the example everybody knows about, of course, is the, you know, you think of the percent of federal spending that goes towards, you know, the major social programs like Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare and other major programs. Well, a lot of those programs are growing as a percent of the federal spending and they're not sustainable. And everybody knows they're not sustainable. However, to do something to deal with this is going to require short-term sacrifice well, that's fundamentally inconsistent with the length of the election cycle. So one of the challenges we have when it comes to governance is how do we reconcile solving these longer-term challenges given the short-term disincentive to propose anything that involves pain, that involves sacrifice, because no politician is willing to do that because no you know, voter is going to vote for that. So I think that's one of the challenges, one of the inconsistencies in our system. So, Michael, thank you for your time today. Uh, I really appreciated the insights and the book, Ruthless Consistency. Very good read. How can folks get a copy? Great. Appreciate that. Yes. book. The book comes out on uh, September 1. September 1 is the launch date. And you can get it at makingstrategyhappen.com. Makingstrategyhappen.com. Go to our website. It'll be available. And you'll find lots of resources there as well. You'll find a lot of uh, blog posts and other resources to help you make strategy happen. I've probably done over 400 blogs in the last <laughs> eight, nine years. Uh, so, yeah, it comes out. I mean, this has been my focus for, uh, for a number of years. So, yeah, that, that's the place to go, makingstrategyhappen.com. And I would just really encourage you know, all your listeners to, you know, these principles, again, apply to organizations of all sorts. So if you're in a leadership role, you know, with people implementing change, executing strategy, you know, these are the principles and practices that can really help you be successful. Thanks, Michael. Take care. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Michael. It's been great. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Dr. Michael Kanick, author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.